Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Okay, I'm very happy to be here. This is only my second trip to Nebraska. 25 years ago, I think I was in Kearney. I know I was in Kearney. I think it was 25 years ago. Um, uh, so maybe I'll live another 25 years. I'll go to Omaha or something. Uh, just work my way around the state. Very happy to be here. I bring you greetings from the Catholic University of America, where I'm actually a retired professor. Uh, the Catholic University of America was founded in 1887 to be a place where uh, American priests and religious could get a PhD in Catholic theology without going to Europe. Uh, people don't realize sometimes the PhD is basically a late 19th century invention. And at the end of the 19th century, you had to move towards schools giving uh, PhDs as being required for uh, teaching at a place like University of Nebraska. And so CUA was basically created as a kind of graduate school uh, in, um, in theology, in Catholic theology, and particularly what's called the sacred sciences, philosophy, theology, and canon law, and it still does that. Very good, happy to be here. One of the, my duties at Catholic University, uh, since I've been there, have been teaching courses in eschatology, which you may be wondering, what is eschatology? It is the theological area where one discusses last things. Eschaton means simply last thing in Greek. The eschata are the last things. Eschatology is the doctrine of the last things. So I teach a course required for seminary students. Students are going to be priests. Where we sort of, you know, it's heaven for a week, hell for a week, purgatory for a week, death for a week. This is sort of happy-go-lucky kinds of a course. Um, I did a conference once at Providence College um, where I was a visiting professor, and part of this visiting professor gig was that you, they would set up a conference and they would invite speakers on any topic you wanted. So I thought, you know, I've never been to a conference on hell. The title of the conference was simply hell. Um, and, and I, you know, sort of put on my Facebook page, you know, just put the conference poster, hell, and I put underneath it, you know, you need not register, just show up. <laughs> um, you know, said, we, uh, that's what I was worried about. <laughs> You'll just not register, you just show up and you're in hell. Um, what I want to talk about tonight, what I was asked to talk about, is the topic of hope in heaven. Uh, so this is sort of a double-focused presentation. Um, on hope as a reality, a virtue, one of the three theological virtues, and talk a bit about heaven. It's surprisingly how little one hears often in church about heaven in the specific sense. 
Um, this may run a little shorter than some other presentations to leave more room for question and answer. Again, I do teach courses on this material regularly. There is almost no question you can possibly think of that somebody in the medieval and early modern period didn't ask and write a long book about. Uh, so, well, raise a question. I, I, I may have run across it, or I can find it and write you an email later. Very good. I'm going to talk then. First, we say something about hope. Hope is one for Catholic theology. You should have a handout. There should be an outline. Everybody has some next to the door. I'll follow the handout that line fairly closely. Hope is one of the three theological virtues. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he speaks of faith, hope, and love. And there's a long tradition of understanding the core of the Christian life as centered around those three virtues. Faith, hope, love. Now, hope is always the kind of um, middle child of this group, the one that gets ignored. I'm a middle child. Um, faith in Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologiae gets only half the space that's given, I mean, hope gets only half the space given to faith, only one quarter of the space given to love. Now, you might say that's appropriate, but nevertheless, hope is the one that's skipped over. Uh, let me say something about hope and how it relates I'm going to give you something of, of Aquinas' analysis of hope and how that leads us into talking about heaven. A crucial point about Christianity, and generally about, I would say, the Abrahamic religions, that is, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, is that they are end-oriented. They are teleological. Telos is just the Greek for end. Christianity thinks that we are oriented in our very natures, to some kind of end. Now, that's to some degree true of most religions, except perhaps Buddhism and some of its kinkier forms. Uh, it was once a part of basic analysis. Aristotle would say, to understand something, you must know its formal cause, material cause, efficient cause, and its final cause. What's its purpose? What's its point? A crucial move in the history of modern culture is when final causes fell out. You'll never ask in a physics class, or in a biology class, or in a chemistry class, well, but, but what are the molecules trying to do? What are they trying to realize? What's the end that's driving them? That's what Galileo and Francis Bacon wiped out as a part of, of their analysis. But the end, Christianity thinks, built into people, in fact, into all things, are ends. And two, the end that we're oriented toward is not arbitrary. You don't just pick it. It's a function of our nature. Human beings are oriented towards certain kinds of actions or states which constitute their flourishing. This is true of particularly living things. Trees seek to flourish as trees. Trees will bend into the light. Dogs seek to realize dogness, so to speak. It's what dogs do. People Try to realize humanity, the, whatever are those states and activities that constitute the flourishing of what it is to be a human being. Well then, what will fulfill human nature? Now, I hate to give you the spoiler alert, but you probably could have guessed it. The standard Christian answer is God. Now, Thomas Aquinas will give you a long analysis why nothing but God can fulfill human nature. 
but let's just take that for the moment as read, that we are created with an orientation toward God who is the good, the true, the beautiful, being itself. So as St. Augustine says at the very beginning of his confessions, we are created for God and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. That there's an orientation built into human nature toward a certain kind of fulfillment, flourishing qua human, flourishing as human beings, which is an end toward which we are oriented. And that is, finally, the right kind of relation to God. It is then our hope, the hope that is sort of built into, the root of hope, is in this orientation of our nature toward that which will fulfill us, God. And in that sense, God is the ultimate object of our hope. If you ask, what is the Christian hope for? The Christian hope is for God. For a kind of perfect human relationship with God. And that fulfillment is simply heaven. If you want the fundamental definition of heaven, heaven is simply the fulfillment of the human relationship with God. I'll talk a bit about more detail on what that would be. But the presence of God is, is heaven. The absence of God is hell. That's the fundamental theological kind of definition. And it's not arbitrary. It's because it's what's built into us. We're built for, so to speak, human nature, a kind of flourishing in God. And the question is whether we hit that mark. Now note, the point I want to really make here, because it's going to lead into something else, is that the, the, the virtue of hope isn't arbitrary. The notion is this is something built into human nature. We are oriented in a certain way so that if you know the nature of the human being, you can understand why it hopes in a certain way and why it hopes for can be nothing less than the true itself, the good itself, the beautiful itself, so to speak, God. Um, so that what we hope for isn't just God, Aquinas says, it's God is what will fulfill and perfect our nature. There is a kind of self-reference here, Aquinas says, where hope is the hope, this will bring you to your fulfillment. And the only thing that can bring you to your fulfillment is God. So one can say, in fact, I thought of starting this lecture, that for Aquinas, it really is about self-fulfillment. What you long for is self-fulfillment. But Aquinas' point, maybe different from most modern culture, is that there's only one thing that's going to bring you fulfillment, and that's God. But you hope for God as that which will bring you to the inherent perfect, the perfection of your inherent human nature. That's Aquinas' analysis of hope. Um, that'll be the background for what I want to lead into for talking about heaven. Talking about heaven isn't easy. This is something I'm going back to over and over again. Um, how do we know about it? Um, people who die don't talk. I mean, dead men tell no tales, and they don't do anything else either. There are near-death experiences. We can talk about that a bit. But it's near-death experiences. No, it's not death experiences. How much to make of near-death experiences, I'm not sure, in terms of theology. I mean, Paul says... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. So we've got a basic problem here. I mean, how do we think about the ultimate end of all things, heaven? An issue I'm going to come back to repeatedly 
is about time. Will there be time in heaven? Will time just go on, just like now, but endlessly? Will time somehow stop? I mean, eternity is technically timelessness. There is no passage from past to present to future. Or will time somehow be radically different, a different kind of time, which isn't measurable, but perhaps is measured by the intensity of the experience? And what do we mean by time anyway? Um, I don't do a whole lot of hard science, but we have some hard science people here. In modern quantum, chemist, uh, quantum mechanics and relativity theory, time has gotten an exceedingly complicated concept. Um, so what do we mean by time anyway? So I just want to note there's a set of issues. This is simply, I'll make lots of assertions, and if you press me, I'll say, by golly, I'm right, but I think I only want 5% know what I mean. Um, that we make certain assertions, God is perfect, is the perfect completion. My, I will have the same body, but radically transform. At a high level of generality, I'll make assertions, but I can't fill in the details. Uh, because no eye has heard, no, no eye has heard, uh, no eye has seen, no ear heard, blah, blah, blah. But God is prepared. Where do we talk about things? Where do we, what are our sources? Two. One is biblical material. Revelation. Um, there actually is less about heaven than you may think in, in the Old and New Testament, but there is some stuff there. You do get some comprehensive pictures. Two would be the end of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 65 and 66, and then the end of the book of Revelation, uh, which I'll refer to a large number of times. Revelation 21, Revelation 22, where John the seer sees a new heaven and a new earth, New Jerusalem descends from the sky like a bride prepared for a bridegroom, and you have a whole set of comments then about the New Jerusalem. Um, they are Isaiah 65, 66, and Revelations 21, 22 are rather different. Um, Isaiah 65, 66 is interesting to look at uh, because it's it's sort of the natural world with everything bad taken out of it, but not transformed. It says no one will die young, but people will still die; just will be really old. Um, whereas there'll be no death at all in the, in the New Jerusalem of Revelation 21 and 22. Um, but there's a problem. I mean, how do we deal with books like this? Book of Revelation is, of course, notoriously uh, complicated. Uh, not just the, the issues about, you know, seven horned beasts or ten horned beasts with seven heads and coming out of the ocean, blah, 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 but just the symbols of the New Jerusalem. I mean, it says, for example, this is Revelations 21, 19, um, that the New Jerusalem will have 12 gates ornamented with 12 precious stones. Each will be a different precious stone for each of the 12 gates. Will it literally have 12 gates? With literal, you know, chrysolite and, and beryl and all these other stones, the exact identity of which I have no idea, uh, on the gates? I think not. But are there other things which... Might, one might take to be significant. For example, in that same passage, we're told that on the 12 gates will be inscribed the 12 names of the tribes of Israel. And what's interesting, it's still in many ways a Jewish city. The gates are the names of the tribes of Israel. That seems to me significant in a way that say it's got different jewels and each gate doesn't. But that's because, because I find a theological meaning in the, in the names of the tribes of Israel on the gates. Is that arbitrary? I mean, what do we do with a symbolic language? Um, that's a difficult kind of question. 
Let me say one thing, though, I want to stress that's in biblical pictures of heaven, and this will influence how I'm approaching the whole question. I'll be talking about heaven as a post-resurrection reality, after the resurrection of the body. I'm not primarily talking in this presentation about heaven as the, the space, in very heavily marked air quotes, space of souls between death and resurrection. I'm not denying the survival of the soul between death and resurrection. I'm just saying from the New Testament and for the early church, the focus of the Christian hope is not that one will go to heaven when you die. The focus of the Christian hope is the return of Christ, the transformation of all things, the new Jerusalem, the new relationship with God radically transformed. That's the center of the New Testament hope. Even as late as St. Augustine, writing the beginning of the 5th century, he's highly agnostic. He just isn't sure what to say about the body, between, the soul between death and resurrection. He affirms it lives on. He just doesn't think one can say much about it. But he goes into great details on the resurrection body. Uh, so I'm going to be talking about the final reality, not sort of where my grandmother is right now. I'm talking about where the blessed will be come the end of all time. Uh, that's what I'm going to talk about heaven. That, that's the primary orientation of hope for the New Testament. Not the only one, but the primary one. I would note this relates to a basic question about human flourishing. I mean, I said heaven is where all the essential aspects of what it is to be human are realized. Well, are bodies just side points of who we are? You've had a few Christian theologians who said that. Gregory of Nyssa, N-Y-S-S-A, thought that, in fact, we have bodies only because God foreknew we were going to fall. If we were not going to fall, we would have remained bodiless. We would have been like angels. We have bodies only because of the fall, and when it says God made them uh, clothing of skins, that means God gave us flesh. But well, that's a very, so Augustine, Nyssa thought that on the last day we'll arise without any fleshly bodies in any sense. And there'll be no more male and female. Sexual differentiation will disappear. He's a theologian writing in the fourth century in the East. That's a very unique opinion. Almost everybody has insisted we will rise, and it is Catholic dogma. Uh, we will rise, in fact, with the bodies we now have, but radically transformed. Now, what the Council, what the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215 said was, you will rise with a body you have in this life, but radically transformed. Well, what kind of changes can occur and it still be the same body? I mean, this is an old theology, philosophy trick about the Theseus's ship. Theseus set sail with a ship. And first one part goes bad, they have to replace it. They replace it with another part, then another part goes bad, and another part goes bad. And by the time it gets back, they've replaced every single part. Is it still the same ship? Well, I mean, it's a criteria of identity. How much can our bodies change in the resurrection and still be the same bodies? That's a very good question, which you've had great debate. What the church insists is that it really is the same body, but it will be radically transformed. Now, this is because our nature must be fulfilled. We are bodily creatures. We're not just uh, spirits caught in a physical world. Uh, we are, in fact, 
integrity, body, and soul. To be completed, we must be, um, we must be in fact, resurrected. Now, I'll note also, so we have these big pictures about heaven, particularly Revelation 21 22. Uh, we also have some individual verses. I give you one on the handout there where, where Jesus says in response to an argument uh, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. We, have, we can discuss a bit what that means, uh, but Jesus said it. We have to kind of live with it. A question sometimes is, does a particular verse apply to the, to the heavenly situation? In Augustine's The City of God, book 22, he takes Jesus' statement, not a hair of your head will be lost, and thinks it applies to the resurrection. You're going to get back every strand of hair you ever grew. This is a problem. That's a lot of hair. What are you going to do with it? He thinks, well, it'll get transformed into other parts of your body, so everybody's going to be bigger because of all this hair you get back. Now, that's a little odd. It's a quite odd. But, but note, what Augustine is very serious. He takes the Bible quite seriously, and he's looking for passages with an eschatological, might give you some information. So sort of stressing how hard it is to try and figure out. So one source of thinking about heaven is simply biblical material. But I would note a second approach. I've said heaven will fulfill everything essential to being human. If you think something is essential to being human, then it must be in heaven, and it must be in heaven perfected. So we can think from our understanding of what it is to be human toward what we think the perfection of humanity in heaven will be like. Is knowing things part of the, perfect, of the essence of humanity? Well, then we must know perfectly in heaven. But this gets tricky. How about freedom? Is freedom of the essence of being human? You think so. Is the freedom to sin part of being human? Will we be able to sin in heaven? That seems difficult. I mean, in heaven there can't be sin. If I can sin in heaven, does that mean that I fall out? And it is Catholic dogma. Once, once you're in heaven or hell, you don't get out. I mean, it's permanent, it's final. How do we understand the perfection of freedom in heaven? This has been debated. What's the place of choice? Choice is a big deal in our culture. Um, you want different kinds of things. But a lot of choice is arbitrary. What do I want this morning? Do I want Jeff or Skippy? Um, well, that, Skippy is clearly superior. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's, you know, do I feel like, you know, this or that, or it's really arbitrary. I gotta buy a pencil, there's a blue pencil, there's a red pencil, it's arbitrary. When a choice is really important, what you're gonna do with your life, is it a matter of choice? One of the most important things I ever did in my life was get married. Now, I mean, I really, was utterly voluntary, I wanted to marry her. I really wanted to do this. Choice didn't have much to do with it. Now, part of it was because pool of people who had any interest at all in being my wife was a very, very, very small, in fact, often empty pool. Um, so it wasn't a matter of choice. But it wasn't, I mean, even if there had been choice, it was an act that was me. I mean, this really was bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, as Adam says to Eve. When it's a really important thing, 
It's free, free in the sense that it's your act. There's a sort of unity between who you are and what you're now doing. It's not forced on you. This is me, by golly, and I want to marry her. I want life with her. This is the life I want. But it's not a matter of choice. It's sometimes, is it just you see, and, the, and you see with the kind of clarity, this is, this is what I desire, this is what I will. And it sort of follows automatically, not violating your freedom, but, but realizing your freedom in an integrated kind of way. Well, seeing God in heaven, excuse me, be like that, that's what Aquinas thought. In this life, we can sin because we only see partial goods. And we can always misjudge the partial goods. But in heaven, we will see face to face. I'll come back to this later. We will see God directly. And Aquinas thought, once you see the good itself, you simply will never be able to choose any lesser good because it will be blindingly obvious. This is the highest of all goods. It's better than anything else possible. It will be like me and my wife and saying, golly, let's lock her down quick. Um, I married her in seven months. Um, the, is that what freedom is like? Since we're thinking about heaven, can make you think about what it is to be a human being and how we think about freedom and choice. Now, the other great medieval philosopher, John Dunn Scotus, John from Dunn's the Scot, disagreed with the blindness. He thought you always, if it's a free decision, can just say, I'd rather not. Even when it's obvious there's no other choice, you can always, I do it, but maybe I won't. And so he thought there had to be a special grace of God that keeps you in heaven. Because simply, freedom itself always means you can just step back and say no. So just noting, we can think, try and think. This is the way theology's often worked on this. Think about heaven out of human nature, but it isn't easy. Because you'll get to basic questions about, about human nature and how we deal with these kinds of questions. What can we say then about heaven? I think we can say a number of things. I think dominant in the Bible is what I've already said. First and foremost, heaven is about God. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, God will be all in all. Or alternately, God will be everything to everyone. I think that means the complete penetration of all reality by God. Us and others. We will see God everywhere. We'll see God directly. We'll see God in all things. We will love God in all things. There'll be the perfect transparency of all things to God. It really will be all about God. Partially, this is due to kind of an immediate presence of God. I just cited a classical passage. It's been important in Western theology about heaven. 1 Corinthians 13. Now I see in a glass darkly. Now I see as in a mirror in relation to God. But then I will see face to face. Or then again, 1 John 3, 2. When God appears, we will see him as he is. Or Revelations 21, 3. The, uh, John hears a loud voice as the new Jerusalem descends. And it cries out, behold, the dwelling of God is with men. There's no temple in the New Jerusalem because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. It's a kind of directness. Usually said there'll be no sacraments in heaven, no mass, no baptism. There'll be nothing to mediate God because there'll be directly 
the presence of God. This is generally referred to, particularly in relation to that passage about seeing face to face, as the beatific vision. The vision that beatifies, that blesses you, that brings blessing. It is Catholic teaching that the blessed will see the essence of God directly, clearly, nakedly, and openly without any mediating object. One will directly see the being of God. And that will be the ultimate blessing. That's the highest possible knowledge of God that can be had. In fact, it's a participation in God's own knowledge of himself. And this is why God is all in all. There'll be a direct presence of God, particularly to rational creatures, that is to angels and to human beings. And that's a kind of deification. We'll participate in the being of God. Um, this is in First Peter, that we'll be consorts, participants in the being of God. And that will be perfected in heaven. This is where one comes to eternity. Typically, Aquinas others talk about the particular eternal aspect of life in heaven is in that, that moment of the perfect vision of the being of God, which will simply transfix us, which will lift us out of time. Are there moments sometimes of beauty, of seeing something, where you're just lifted out of time and you simply lose track of the passing of time? which seems like eternity. Will that be a permanent aspect of life in heaven as we see God directly? A kind of participation in God through that vision. Now for Aquinas, it's precisely that intellectual vision, because it's not a physical vision. We're not talking seeing with our eyes. God's invisible. We're talking about a kind of mental intuition of the being of God. That's primarily in the intellect. And for Aquinas... It's in the intellect, in the mind, in the, in the mind side of the intellect, the intellect, so to speak, that we will be united to God. The, that will culminate in love, but what connects us with God, or Aquinas, is really finally the intellectual, the beatific vision in the intellect. Now, just note here, I'm not a systematic Thomist, although I give Thomas Institute lectures. Um, there's another tradition, the Franciscan tradition, I uh, mentioned John Duns Scotus, which insisted it's no, it's love that binds us to God. After all, this faith and open love, and the greatest of these is love. So whereas there is the beatific vision, and that is important, what really binds us to God is love. Now again, that's a, it like a trivial issue, but sort of the issue here is the relation of intellect and will. What guides the person? Intellect? You can't love something until you know it. You can't hate something until you know it. But what about will? There are plenty of things I know I don't want to know. And it's the will that doesn't let me know them. Uh, or um, that I, I, I know precisely because the will chooses to lead me to them. How do we understand the interrelation of intellect and will, of knowing and, and desiring? Or will it be the case that this division within us between knowing and willing. Sometimes I know precisely what I, I ought to do, and I just don't do it. Uh, sometimes we you know why. Um, it's hard to tell. Well, the division between intellect and will tend to, be, to disappear in human perfection. Will there be an integration of intellect and will? Will we become more like God, who's perfectly simple? And so what we know, we will love, and what we love, we will know. So that heaven is a perfect unity of love and knowledge. Um, that, 
At least that's what I would, would want to say. But now, let me note a problem. Yes. What I've talked about, um, if I stopped here, you might think heaven is just, you know, we're all going to be sitting around sort of a God, staring at God. Um, there seems to be no social reality to what I've said so far. And I must say, when you read Thomas Aquinas, it can sound that way. Um, it's all just going to be sort of sitting around the campfire, absolutely spellbound by the campfire. Um, that's the way it can seem. Let me note some ways of getting into this. I think the first thing to be said, we can ask, who is it that's doing the seeing? I don't think it's us as individuals. I think we participate in Jesus' vision of God. Notice I've said very little about Jesus having any role in any of this. That's because I think he'll be the context of it all. We will see God as participating in Christ's vision. The agent, the subject, will be the body of Christ. And who's part of who's the body of Christ? We are, the church. We will ta be taken into Christ's own vision. To go further, we can ask what, in fact, is what happens when, in, in heaven in various biblical pictures. Seem to me there are two dominant events. Particularly in the book of Revelation, whenever there's a vision of heaven, they always seem to be having some kind of worship. Now, this is pretty gangbusters worship. I mean, this is um, something fairly large. It's an enormous, endless, joyful liturgy. This is always going on in Revelation. In Revelation 4, the first really big vision into heaven, the seer says, in the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. Day and night they never stopped singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor, power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. It's always liturgy going on in heaven. And great big, I mean, you know, people falling down, standing up, throwing crowns. It's often then, I mean, what I tend to think of as heaven, it's like one big Easter vigil service. If you've ever been to an Easter vigil service, and I would urge you to do so this year, going on and on, you're moving around, big events, the Dominican House of Studies that's sort of sponsoring this lecture series, they have one with a great bonfire outside, go back in. I mean, it's an, an enormous sort of joy, feast. That seems to be the biblical picture of heaven. It's a kind of endless, social, interactive liturgy service, sort of the best you can possibly imagine. And there's a second image that often goes with heaven besides liturgy, and that is feasting, banquets. Jesus says in Matthew, many will come from east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In Revelation, John the seer hears the voice cry out, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. This becomes an important kind of often artistic image of the marriage supper of the Lamb as the sort of consummation of all world history. And the bride has made herself ready, and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. 
The marriage is the marriage of Christ and his church, or in that, the marriage of God and humanity that occurs in the incarnation. Um, so the marriage here, the culmination of God's relation with all things, with humanity in particular, is then realized in a liturgy and a great big feast. Eha. Actually, if it's a good Easter visual service, it should always end with a lot of food. Um, so that's sort of the, the picture of heaven. It's a sort of great big party um, alternating with sort of really well done liturgy. Um, that's the sort of social picture where there is interaction among the people involved, but the interaction is always never loses its focus on what it's about, on the marriage supper of the Lamb, on the one being worshipped. That's the sort of, it seems to me, biblical picture of what heaven is like. Now, then I would say in summary, but this is the very end of that outline, what we hope for in heaven then is unity with God in Christ, which will be the perfect fulfillment, happiness, and blessedness that will perfectly fulfill what we were created to be. Thus, the two poles here are God and humanity. That's why I talked about hope at the beginning. Hope is the orientation toward our fulfillment. That's what we hope for in heaven, and that is realized in this kind of relationship with God. That is the focus of our hope. Now, one can say a great deal more about a lot of things. Uh, one thing I haven't said anything about uh, is why any of this matters. Why should we speculate about this stuff? We can certainly talk about that a bit in the conversation. I think it does make a difference in our daily lives if we have a kind of anchor. Um, the anchor holds within the veil. It says in the book of Hebrews, we have a hope that is certain, uh, that lies outside the, 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 the vicissitudes of history. We can talk about that. Now, what I've given you, because I think this is broadly speaking, not the entirety, but at least the focus, is a very humanity-centered picture of heaven. Um, that's pretty much what I've talked about, the occasional side bit about angels. However, heaven is more than that. The Bible does talk about heaven as the fulfillment of all things. All things hold together in Christ. All things will find their fulfillment in him. God told Job, the morning stars sang at the foundation of the universe. Will the evening stars sing at the consummation of the universe? Yeah, I would certainly hope so. Um, although we have to think, what the, could that mean? I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, it is the case, I think, the biblical picture of the heaven, biblical picture of heaven, for the most part, but not entirely, focuses on humanity. Remember, the lamb will lie down with the lion. Um, what do you ask? Woody Allen said, the lamb will lie down with the lion, but the lamb won't get much sleep. Um, but maybe the lion will get, the lamb will get sleep. Um, so you do have that biblical picture. But when we get beyond humanity, we start skating on thin ice. Uh, then we have to become very speculative. There have been a lot of discussion about whether animals will be resurrected. Will your pet uh, rise on the last day with you? Uh, we could talk about that. Aquinas, I'm afraid, said no. But St. Jerome said yes. Uh, so you get different opinions. We can talk about that. The crucial point I want to make is that the heaven we hope for is the perfect, fulfilled, final communion with God and each other. The heaven whose gates were open on the Easter day we will soon celebrate. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, 
please consider showing your support at www.themysticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.